Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Revelations, featuring Michelle de Kretzer and Caridwin Dovey in conversation with Caroline Baum, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hello, everybody, and thank you very much for being here at this session today. I know there's fierce competition in the tents for your attention, um, and it's just lovely to see so many of you here. My name is Caroline Baum, and I'm delighted to be in conversation with two of the writers that I most admire, Kerid Wendovi and Michelle de Kretzer. Um, This session is called Revelations, which is a little bit of an abstract kind of a title, and um, so we're going to graze a little bit loosely around the two books so that we cover those of you that have read the books and those of you that have not, which is a little bit of a juggle. So I hope you'll bear with me, but I will give you a little bit of kind of expositional outline of what what some of the themes and ideas of these books are. Um, They're both big, meaty books, which are actually quite hard to describe, but they both take the world as their stage. Both feature strong female protagonists who are searching for creative fulfillment, and both were written by authors who came to Australia from somewhere else. Both explore how creativity works and play around with point of view and unreliable narrators. In The Garden of the Fugitives, Caridwin Dovey interweaves two voices in a sort of psychological chess game. An older American male, Royce, He's a a dying philanthropist, and his beneficiary is a young South African documentary maker called Vita. These are worldly educated people, especially Royce, who's a sophisticated esthete. In his letters to Vita, he tells her about an unreciprocated love he had for Kitty, a young archaeologist working at Pompeii. He's still smarting some 50 years after being rejected by her. Meanwhile, Vita is struggling to find a purpose and a project worthy of her privileged status as a white woman who has returned to post-apartheid South Africa. So as you can see, a lot of meat on the bones there. In the life to come, Michelle de Kretzer splits the narrative into several shards of story that connect in often small and unexpected ways to convey the sense that we are all bit players in someone else's story. One of the central characters, my favorite I think, is a writer called Pippa, who's not hugely talented, but she is very determined. We see her at various stages of her life, from Sydney to Paris and back again, but we also meet a vast cast of secondary characters with rich inner lives and hidden stories of love, displacement, failure, and disappointment. Will, will you join me in welcoming Michelle and Caridwin? Thank you. Okay, so I think it's nice for us to remember that we're all here first and foremost as readers. Um, and so I'm going to start by asking each of you what you're reading at the moment. So, Caridwin, what are you reading? Um, oh, it's lovely to be here in this beautiful setting. Thank you for coming along to hear us chat. Um, I have just finished the third um, in the Rachel Cusk trilogy. Um, it's a, a, a trilogy of books um they're ostensibly novels but she sort of found a new way of um 
kind of walking that line between hybrid uh, memoir and fiction. And the most recent one um, is called Kudos and it was just published. Um, it's a very disturbing book to read as a writer because <laughs> in this book in particular, she sets it in a, at a sort of unnamed European literary festival. Ooh. You sort of assume it's Portugal. <laughs> and um, there's some uncomfortable truths in there about the modern um, nature of being a writer and the kind of performing selves uh, that, you know, we've got our performing faces on right now. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> luckily, Michelle and I know each other very well. So <laughs> we can, <laughs> um, but actually similar, it has some of the same themes that I found so intriguing and also unsettling in Michelle's novel. Um, you know, looking again, very, with very clear eyed honesty and sometimes, um, you know, a, a sort of sharper edge at, yeah, what it means to be a writer and to have to circulate now alongside your your work. Mm. You know, the work doesn't speak for itself anymore. You have to kind of speak for it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's very topical. Michelle, what about you? Uh, I'm reading Deborah Levy's um, memoir, Things I Don't Want to Know. <laughs> Great title. <laughs> which is her response to Orwell's essay, why I write, and Orwell had four headings um, for, of four motives to, to explain why he wrote, why he thinks anyone writes, and they are, um, I've got to try and remember these, um, historical impulse, um, aesthetic enthusiasm, sheer egoism, and um, political purpose. And do you identify with all four of those? Oh, well, obviously all of them. <laughs> um, but Deb Levy is really interesting. So she writes, so, so there are four sections in the book on each, with, with that heading, but she doesn't directly address them as subjects in her essays. And, I mean, it's a wonderful sort of memoir because it doesn't have that rather... Um, you know, stuffed full of personal detail feeling that some memoirs can have. Um, it's very light-footed, and I think lightness is something I admire greatly in narrative. Whether and to find it in nonfiction is sort of extraordinary. Mm. You know, um, and so it's this book that you read, and I'm trying not to read it too quickly because I feel myself doing this terrible thing of gobbling, gobbling, gobbling. Yes, we all binge when we, when we um, get enthusiastic about something. But interestingly, new research shows that um, when we like something, we do actually slow down. So we, we, the brain actually allows us to, to, to slow down to um, extend the pleasure when, when we read something. So the gobbling, I think, is a first-pass read, and yeah. then often the pleasure, I think, comes from the reread. When yeah. you're not in such a panic yeah. about the information that you yeah. want, you yeah. can go back at your leisure and read more deeply and get the, the richer sort of nutrients. Yeah, is I mean, that pacing? Do you think? Because it's a slim book. I haven't read it, but I, I just bought it, and it's a slim book. And do you think that there's something in the um, setting yourself a shorter? Amount of it's space short, to work yes, in. Yes, I think you're right. So it's it's quite a short book. Um, it's also to do with the sentences, which are which are quite simple, but they're not simplistic, mm. um, and they move. It moves quickly. You know, um, 
that thing Italo Calvino talked about, the, the secret of lightness, the secret of lightness in narrative. And um, she just has that. I need to, so when I'm finished gobbling, I need to go back and then look at how she achieves it. So I don't really mm. know, but it's something to do with the way the sentences um, are structured, I think, and the, and the kind of strange counterintuitive leaps that she makes between sentences. I love the way when writers mm -hmm. talk about what they're reading, you get this sense that you are looking for clues to technique. You yeah, know, it's kind of, of like when you talk about lightness, it's almost like you're talking about someone who's making scones and who, who <laughs> needs to know how to not work the flour and the butter too much. I know. You know it's it's yeah. that. Uh, just um, picking up on... Um, um, what I said in the introduction, Michelle, it struck me when I was reading um, The Life to Come that the book seems to me to be a continuation of a conversation that you've been having with yourself and with your readers about some of the themes that you touched on in Questions of Travel. Um, and I wondered whether that was right, you know, whether, whether you, you, you finish a book and you haven't necessarily finished thinking about some things or working out what you think about some things. And so you have some some material that's kind of left over that you do put into the new book? Or, or is each new book a completely fresh departure, a fresh set of ideas? Um, look, that, that's a really good question, and I think... I want to know what you think about this too, but I think both things are true. Okay. Not particularly... I, th I think each book is new, um, but I think... Writers have generally only one or two deep themes to which they keep coming back. Um, but that's so true, that thing about people, um, writers coming back to material. Um, the, one, the person I always think of in that connection is Pat Barker. And I don't know if you ever read that brilliant trilogy about the First World War, Regeneration. I mean, yes. just one of the great, mm. you know, books. And... Yet, even, so she writes three novels about the First World War, and then in every subsequent book that she's written, it's not about the First World War, but something about the First World War will sort of flash up in these subsequent books. So, you know, that's material that has, it, it, it's psychological. It's not that I think she's got leftover material that she's trying to find a kind of, no. you know, no-waste way of using. Um, it just comes up it just comes up I think that we accept that very readily in um, music we accept that composers will reuse motifs and will yeah. borrow from themselves oh. and reference previous work but maybe we um, don't allow the same thing in in literature where we we privilege the idea of originality that everything yeah. has to be completely new whereas I actually quite like the idea that there's a sort of sediment of themes and issues and ideas that you return to and you revisit but yeah. from a different point of view so that's yeah. what I think you're you're yeah. doing mm. um Caridwin, this book seems to me um uh, the garden of the fugitives seems to me to be very close to your heart in terms of your relationship to South Africa and your ambivalence about it and I wondered whether you could share some of that with us because you went to high school here you moved to the states you came back here but can you just give us a sense of uh, your relationship to South Africa and your kind of South African heritage and identity? Um, well, I suppose actually to connect to that last question, um, the, the big theme, I guess, you know, 
that's animating my work is this sense of having been complicit in a system of abuse. Um, mm. And I've been writing fiction for 15 years. I started quite young. There've been many failed projects in between, but you know, now that I've been doing it for long enough or sort of working on the, um, you know, the craft of it for long enough, I can begin to see some of the same patterns and obsessions that, you know, raise their heads in each new project. Um, but this was the first time I had ever drawn directly on mm. the raw experience of my own life. And I still don't really have the terms to speak about it outside of the book. Um, you know, the weird thing, I think, too, about being a novelist is that everything you have to say you can only say in that form. So I have nothing to say about South Africa outside of the book, I'm, and I'm not being difficult, I wow. promise. Um, it's just that language fails me in any other form to, uh, to really process that uh, experience, and particularly the sense, I think, of growing up as a white South African and being part of a class of perpetrators, um, or certainly of beneficiaries, that people like me should be silenced. So to take a speaking position, I still find very complicated and uncomfortable and I avoided doing it in the previous two books I wrote to the degree where I wrote from the perspective of dead animals <laughs> because it was the only way I could kind of, you know, deal with some of these themes without feeling like I was robbing someone else of a voice. So, yeah. That's so but interesting. I just want to say, sorry, yeah. that also you come from a family where, you know, your parents were very active um, in the resistance against apartheid. So I just want that acknowledged mm. for people who might not know that, who might come away with a different Yes, maybe maybe the way in then to give give you some words. Thank you for that lead, Michelle. That's a very good um I, don't, I mean, prompt. I don't, I, I know yeah. how you feel about that. Because I think, yeah, it would be maybe interesting. I just interesting want to acknowledge that. Well, thank you. For you to say something yeah, about your parents then. Well, Actually, the way Michelle and I know each other is that my mum and Michelle studied at Melbourne Uni together in the 80s. So we'd come in the early 80s and then mum did her PhD there. And, um, yeah, I think part of the difficulty for me of unwinding the strands of that South African identity is that I had kind of taken on their identities um, without forging an authentic one with South Africa myself. And I think that's often the case when you've left as a child, um, and I know you left Sri Lanka when you were 14, mm -hmm. and I also then ended up leaving South Africa at 14, and it's a funny age because you're not yet an adult, but you kind of have a sense of the adult world. Mm. Um, and so I think my relationship certainly with South Africa through my um, teens and then 20s was obsessive in the sense that it wasn't uh, an artifact of something that I had earned um but I had I desperately wanted it for myself mm -hmm. and it took moving back there as an adult and realizing actually I had a horrible time in Cape Town and um you know had to let go of that identity and a big part of that time is I'm processing in in the book I hope you did, that was okay to say that <laughs> oh, of course no thank you thank you for saying that I mean it is so complicated with I know South Africa because, yeah. you know, yeah, they did some stuff, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't nearly well, what they could have or, you know, and again, that thing of ta what identity you take um, 
it's 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 tricky right like, it's yeah. very powerful in terms of something that we were just talking about before we came out here which is that um Caridwin and i both share uh an enthusiasm for and an interest in a writer called Brene brown whom um Caridwin in fact acknowledges in the um acknowledgements at the back of the book and Brene brown is an american social researcher who many of you would possibly know through a ted talk on vulnerability and shame which i think has had 11 million viewings and um i was just wondering whether maybe you could talk about shame and guilt in relation to Brene Brown's wisdom and what what you've got from from that that's informed your writing yeah there's um the, probably the weirdest part of this book is where this character Vita um has this kind of weird form of therapy with a black South African who she grew up with who's become a psychotherapist but uses very unusual um, methods and it's all totally invented I've actually had people come up to me and say does this therapy for white guilt exist and if so where can I sign up <laughs> and I have to sort of say no no I just really made that up and actually you know you can't get therapy for white guilt you actually have to get rid of racism first and that's how you get rid of it um, but you know for me it was a way of trying to find a vocabulary for some of these feelings and you know when we think of white guilt I think often then we just shut down straight away like white guilt oh god awful uncomfortable move on um but I wanted to sort of dig beneath that just as we understand all the different qualities of what it is to be um you know suffering or to be victimized in a situation what does it mean to feel guilty um and Brene Brown like you, I didn't expect to enjoy her work. I sort of thought it was going to be in that, you know, chipper self-help mode. Um, but she gave me a vocabulary for these words. And once you can hold up a different kind of word to the light and look at it, um, you can shift something. So I had never thought of the difference between shame, guilt and chronic guilt. Um, so she puts it that... Uh, Guilt is about feeling bad um, for something you did. So I feel guilty because I did something mm. wrong. Whereas shame is about feeling bad for who you are. I feel shame because of who I am. And then chronic guilt operates actually more like shame. So it's something that where it, you can't get rid of it. But the interesting thing about it is that there's a narcissism built into shame that mm. isn't built into guilt. And for me, that was the key to unlocking some of the uncomfortable aspects of this character, Vita. Um, you know, that, as Freud put it, narcissism has two sides of the coin. There's self-love on the one side, but on the other side is self-loathing or mm. self-hatred. So what is it we are asking for when we are, you know, performing white guilt? And what we're asking is to be forgiven. Of course. But that's a kind of moral neediness in itself. And at the same time, you're erecting a certain self by saying, you know, the self-flagellating, I'm such a good person because I feel so guilty, therefore <laughs> I am a good person, therefore. Mm. Um, so she sort of helped me, you know, scratch beneath the surface. I, w I want to ask Michelle about how you respond to that in terms of the character of Pippa because you haven't read Brene Brown. We've just been talking about this um, backstage. But Pippa has this wonderful way of moving through the world where she 
cares about all sorts of things. Um, you know, it might be whales one minute and asylum seekers the next. And she's terrifically sincere about her caring and her causes. And yet at the same time, you are so um, wicked in your uh, satire and mockery of how careless Pippa is in her caring. Could you just tell us a little bit about Pippa's careless caring? (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I thought of Pippa as one of those people who goes through the world doing a certain amount of damage completely unintentionally, Mm. (laughs) um, which is sort of, you know, immediately makes her an interesting character to to write about because, you know, if someone is sort of knowingly... um, cruel or, or, you know, um, evil in some way, well, then they're just not as um, confused. They're not as complex a character. So she was more, that made her more interesting to write about. Um, So the thing about Pippa is that um, she does, you know, she does want to do good, but she's also quite keen on um, performing that. So she likes to tweet about, you know, (laughs) making soup for a sick friend or or posting on Facebook about, you know, um, some friend of hers who has been the victim of a hate crime. And as she's doing it, she's thinking about how people will respond and say, oh, Pippa is such a caring person. So she needs praise. She She needs needs approval. She She can't just do it for the good of it. She has to be seen to do it. That's exactly right. right. So, yeah. But at the same time, you know, she is trying to do good. She, so, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm interested in characters in books, uh, well, as in yours, who are, you know, they are, they're complex. They are. It's one thing to be complex, but what I love about what you've done with Pippa is this idea of a writer who is second rate, um, but who gets there through sheer kind of doggedness. And I didn't feel like I'd seen Pippa before. She was an entirely new sort of writer in the canon of books about writers and 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 the evolution of a writer so uh, no no there's an elizabeth um taylor novel i mean i don't know if any yeah, the real elizabeth taylor obviously not, <laughs> you know the um film the one star. without the diamonds the one without the diamonds um um called angel mm-hmm. uh and that is so it's set in oh gosh i think it's late victorian edwardian times but um she is a terrible writer but she um She's not exactly like Pippa because she's, you know, she's setting out to be a sort of commercial writer, but she has, she has the diamonds, all right. Um, but she's a very, um, you know, second rate. Sort does of. Pippa know that she's second rate? I think Pippa does when she wakes up three in the morning. She fears that she's second rate, but at the same time, we all fear everything at three in the morning, right? <laughs> we, I mean. It's not a good time to be no. away, <laughs> basically. How do you do a character who walks that line between likeable and unlikability? Uh, well, I, want to, I want to ask you that. That's my question <laughs> to you. They don't need but, me at all. <laughs> um, I was so fascinated about that in your book because um, there is so much... Well, I don't know. If, I mean, no one actually puts pressure on us to write, write likeable characters, right? I mean, no one's saying you have to do that. But Well, there is an enormous amount of pressure in America about this factor called relatability, and there is a whole um, category of books on Goodreads 
for relatability um, fiction because there are an awful lot of readers who will say, I don't want to read about characters that I don't like. So you two are going against a trend right. there. Yeah. We'll pay for that, won't we? <laughs> we will pay. It, it's interestingly, it seems to be, am I right, a question that's directed more to women yes. than to I male yes, writers. Um, but, you know, I like, um, what was, it's Claire Massoud, isn't it, who um, her answer to that was, you know, um, like you... you you don't want uh, novels aren't going to provide you with imaginary friends, no. you know. That's that's a whole. That's something else. Um, I mean, I don't know. How do you do it? Because mm. it's. I I wondered, in fact, whether you had deliberately set out to go against the grain of that likability imperative. And no, yeah, I guess. I mean, Pippa and Vita actually have a little bit in common. In they do that sense, yeah. and. Um, What's been weird, at least Pippa doesn't resemble you in any way, shape or form, but what's quite weird for me is when uh, a friend of my mum's read the book and then said to her, you know, clearly Vita's based um, completely on your daughter and um, was was Keridwin really that promiscuous at college? (laughs) I won't answer that question in this forum. It's interesting that that would be the feature of... Of Vita's that she picked up on. Right, like there's worse things she attitude, does, right? That's like, the word. Like the, the attitude towards black people is no. that's not a problem. So I really appreciated when Michelle first <laughs> wrote to me about <laughs> the book and you just, you know, got it and you said something like, you know, she's, Vita's the whiniest, <laughs> most narcissistic, something, <laughs> something character I've ever encountered on the page, you know, and I was yeah. like, oh, thank God. You yeah. <laughs> but then I wonder what other people think if they think that's me. <laughs> um, I wondered where you, uh, at what point in the creative process you both settle on tone for the book because tone is a very important part of voice and style um, and your books both have a very strong, very distinctive voice and tone. And yours, I would say, um, Michelle, would would come through irony. I mean, the, the tone of the book is extremely ironic. Is that something that is your natural voice, the way you interpret the world is through the filter of irony, because I think a little bit it is, <laughs> um, or or is and is and is tone something that that you begin with when you start the first draft, or is it something that you layer in progressively? Okay, um, yeah, thanks for that. I mean, I blame it all on the on the Just William books, which I read <laughs> as a child and loved, and I wanted to be William, and my 11th birthday, you know, William is 11, for 40 years he was 11, my 11th birthday came, I was convinced I was going to become William on <laughs> when I turned 11, um, but I didn't. But a little bit of me did, and um, the humour in the Just William books is all, it, it holds up when you read them as an adult, because it's irony, okay? It's not, a lot of children's humour is sort of slapdash, mm. and yeah, Um so I blame it all on, well, Richmond Crompton, who, who wrote them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm drawn to it because I suppose it's a way of um, distinguishing narrator from character mm. straight away. If the narrative is ironic, then, you know, it's kind of... So it's a distancing tool. Well, irony is completely a distancing trope. Yeah. 
right? Um, because it's about seeing through rather than seeing with. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the opposite of empathy, really. Um, so if you have a narrator who is, or you know, the, the narration in itself is ironic, then immediately you're sort of winking to the reader. You can overdo this. I'm sure I overdo it in places. But you, you're kind of winking to the reader. The reader is getting something that the character is not getting. Yes. So you're establishing a kind of conspiracy between yourself and your reader about the character. Yeah. That's yeah. an interesting dynamic. So, Keridwen, what are you doing in terms of tone? Yours I find more difficult to actually yeah. pin down. Well, yeah, that's also – that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of irony like that, but I suppose um, my novel is uh, – Epistolary, which is a horrible word to say out loud. Um, <laughs> so it's told in an alternating series of letters that are quite old-fashioned. It's not how we'd write emails to each other anymore. Um, but I suppose for me it also solves the creative challenge of, um, you know, that moment of suspension of disbelief when you start reading a piece of fiction as a reader and you're like, why is this person speaking? And who are they speaking to? And wh where is my place in this? Um, and there's a wonderful book called I Love Dick, which is even yes. harder to say out loud, um, <laughs> called by a writer called Chris Krauss. And if you haven't read it, go and read it. Just be careful where you Google it if you are going to Google it. <laughs> and um, she really changed how I was thinking. I had already come up with the epistolary um, thing Device. because I liked that sense of uh, the, the back and forth and the kind of, um, again, the sense of, you know, two warring social selves, private selves kind of playing. Um, but she puts it that, you know, it solves that creative challenge of the author because the, the two characters are speaking to each other. They are not you know, speaking from, from nowhere to no one. And so that sense also, I think, of putting the reader in the position of being an eavesdropper mm -hmm. and then at other points in the book of Voyeur um, kind of, I think, encourages that, um, that dialogic feeling that the best books give us. I always think of something Virginia Woolf said. She gave a lecture in 1926 on what should a book be mm. and she said it should feel like a very dangerous and exciting game that it takes two to play at. Wow. And that was really the kind of tone I was going for and something about these letters back and forth where they're sharing kind of, you know, grubby details of their lives made it feel like a game. But you sort of raise the stakes in terms of difficulty, I think, for yourself because you haven't got just what – I mean, I understand the sort of rhythm, that sort of satisfying baseline tennis thwack, thwack between the letter senders to each other. But it's sort of raising the stakes in terms of degrees of difficulty that you haven't got just one unreliable narrator. You've got two unreliable narrators. And so we as the reader have to keep thinking, do I believe what Royce just said or do I believe Vita's version of events? So you're yeah. really... It, that, that must have been quite challenging. Or was that fun? Oh, that was so much fun. Um, <laughs> And it really goes back again to the kind of books that I love to read and I have to say all of Michelle's give me this feeling of there is a job for you as a reader. You know, you are the third piece to the puzzle and it requires a kind of active reading from you um, and not to get all punsy but, you know, Roland Barthes when they, you know, all this stuff was coming up in the 60s and 70s and what does it mean to read and the politics of reading and 
he speaks about the difference between active and passive reading, which is something we don't often think about. Mm. Um, and the jouissance, the, the bliss that he speaks of, almost like an erotic bliss that comes from reading, only comes when you're doing that sort of active reading where something is being asked of you in return. Um, so, yeah, if that – I don't know if I'm actually pulling that off, but yeah. I think that would always be my um, – Goal. Yeah. What about uh, Michelle? This technique that you've got, which is this sort of um, uh, fractured narrative, where everybody is, as I said before, a kind of a secondary character in someone else's mm. life. That's a you know, there's so many people in this book. I was wondering whether you got to the point where you were drawing diagrams to keep <laughs> track of them to make sure that if you wanted to, you could pop so and so, you know, in over here. Mm. Or do, were you were you perfectly happy to just let people go so that they just disappear after they've sort of had their little cameo in mm. one chapter they just you never see them again yeah I quite liked the idea of the character you invest in and then that person turns out to be either very minor or or not present at all in someone else's story so you know gives the reader a little bit of a jolt which is what we were talking yeah. about i suppose and you think oh so where has george gone yes, oh yes, well yes. you know he's gone i mean he's just not there any longer now we have new people to think about um that's so brave uh, because you start <laughs> with him, and I found word. I did attach to him. I know uh, you, yeah. there's there's an opening character that we meet on page one, George, and basically we don't get much of George throughout the rest of the book. There are tangential sort of asides and references to how he's doing, but because he's there on page one, it sort of tricks us into thinking that the book is going to be about George, and it is absolutely not about George. Now, you take this to even further lengths because you have a character who just literally vanishes, just disappears, and you offer no explanation whatsoever. (laughs) And I'm just wondering how far you can go. You know, are there rules that you are consciously breaking? Are there things that you are consciously subverting when you do something like that. Because when you did that in there, I went back and looked and went, wait a minute, you can't do that. (laughs) What do you mean that person's just disappeared? (laughs) I loved that. (laughs) Well, you would. (laughs) Definitely a play out of your book, I guess. Um, Yeah, it's a tricky one and I guess it also makes the book a bit tricky to talk about because you can. it was written so that you could read it at two levels. Uh So again, back to that active-passive thing. Um, You could either read it as a psychological thriller or as I like to call it, an intellectual thriller, although Mm. I've been told by my publisher never to use that term ever again. (laughs) (laughs) It is a horrible term. But it's meant to, you know, you can read it as a sort of murder mystery and a disappearance and it will make sense. It has a logic if you look closely at those clues. But then there's another way you can read it that goes back to the theme of psychotherapy and um, what it is that we do when we write, why, you know, what is that therapeutic effect of using language to, you know, make explicit something from your own experience. Um, And so you can read it as a form of narrative therapy and a block, an artistic block that at the beginning, Vita has that by the end has been dissolved because the book is in your hands. Um, and there's sort of a scene three quarters of the way through that you can kind of question, yeah, how unreliable exactly these narrators Absolutely. are. But I didn't want it to be a kind of twist that if you didn't get it, you felt 
excluded or that, you know, it kind of, it's there if you want it and if you don't, if you choose to read it the other way, it should be okay as well. Mm. God, it's it's just so complex and ambitious. It's like one of those sorts of, um, it's like a hall of mirrors in terms of all the sorts of um, different effects that you achieve. I think one of the things, obviously, that, that binds both of your books is a very strong sense of the weight of history. And in the case of The Garden of the Fugitives, that history is history that is more widely known to us, in that we know about the apartheid era and we know about white guilt following the apartheid era. Um, I think, Michelle, one of the things that really um, I got a lot out of with your book was um, discovering history that was not known to me, particularly history that I, being part French, should have known, given my heritage. So I was wondering whether you could talk a little bit about the um, the riots in Paris in the 1960s, the whole Algerian um, history that, that pervades a section of the book. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I wrote about it partly because uh, I, I don't have a French, um, you know, French ethnicity, but like you, I studied French and uh, for years and lived in France, and I was so sort of, um, you know, I thought I was on, on top of that stuff. And I was so shocked to discover, um, you know, in the 90s about this incident that had happened in Paris and that, you know, was just never spoken about in any history classes that I'd attended. I was never sort of referred to in conversations with French friends or anything, which is that, um, so, you know, France, uh, um, Algeria was a colony of France, and in the 1960s there was a, uh, well, starting in the 50s, there was a, an independence movement, and in 1961 the um, Algerian um, resistance movement had bombs in Paris and people died. And as a result of that, the police were given uh, pretty much unlimited powers, if this is sounding familiar in other contexts, well, yeah. <laughs> um, and all the, all the Algerians living in France, of whom there were very, very many, because they were doing all the jobs that the French didn't want to do, working in factories, doing manual labor, various kinds, um, were put under a curfew, so they had to be home by, I think it was 8 or 8.30 p.m. every day. So they organized a protest, a peaceful protest, it wasn't anything to do with the um, resistance movement, of just going out into the street after 8 p.m. in October that year to say we want the freedom to move around Paris. Someone tipped off the police who were waiting for them and who just killed them, killed dozens and dozens. I mean, the, the final figures are never known. Some were um, shot and thrown into the sand to, to drown. Mm. Others were taken to the police headquarters, um, which was just up the road. The astonishing thing is that this happened in the middle of Paris on the Pont Saint-Michel. Um, and because, you know, uh, these are pre-internet days, there was, there was a media blackout. And so people just, you know, sort of spoke about it, but it was never formally acknowledged. And the only reason, it's still, the documents are all still classified. Mm. Um, and 
it became sort of publicly acknowledged in the 90s because the man who uh, was the minister for the police, the minister for the interior at the time, who's a very slimy individual called Maurice Papin, mm. was brought to trial for his part in deporting French Jews. Mm. And therefore, his role in other, uh, you know, let's say, unsavory acts was starting to be revealed. So it was kind of, it was my annoyance at having just, you know, just not being told about mm. this. There is in Paris, since the early 2000s, a plaque, a tiny plaque, that commemorates this event on, you know, low down to the ground and around a corner. I mean, you know, you really have to sort of know that it's there to go and find it in the first place. Yeah, the place. French are very good at hidden monuments. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, so I guess it was, um, you know, I, I learned about that in 1993 from a documentary on, on, on French television. And... It took me, what, 25 years to, to write about it. So I had to find the form, you know, in which to, to express mm. it. Um, but you also write about things that we don't know about um, in terms of Pompeii, I think. Yes, well, I was that just going is, to come to that because yeah. one of the great mm. joys for me of your book is that um, uh, Kitty, the archaeologist who's working on oh, the site you. at Pompeii, um, through her we get to learn so much about archaeology and about her particular research. What made you choose um, that Kitty would be an archaeologist at Pompeii and what were you interested in in terms of that research? I think again also about finding the right form to process the other stuff. Um, so I never wanted to just write about the South African stuff. It needed to be held up or pushed back against somehow. Um, and so something about the deep or ancient past where it's, you know, we're not as, um, you know, immediately sensitized to the kinds of things that happened. Um, and then Pompeii, of course, is this, you know, ultimate metaphor. You know, Freud describes it as, um, you know, it's the symbol of repression. And he was obsessed with collecting ancient artifacts mm. and apparently going into his... Um, rooms was like going into a museum and so I, I had come across that I started out as a, a social anthropologist and I'd read his um, his writing on um, you know what how he understood um, that kind of archaeological excavation as sort of like taking that the psyche could be excavated in the same way mm. and that you know between the um, analyst and the patient you could reconstruct someone's past just as you know the buildings of Pompeii are revealed. Um, so that's sort of where the first thing came from. But then the real trigger was, you know, reading widely about Pompeii and then coming upon the work of an Australian archaeologist called Estelle Laser, who um, still works on this, in this field. And she's done this pioneering work on the human remains of Pompeii. She turned up there in the 70s, sorry, in the 80s. Um, and discovered that they'd stuffed all the skeletons into the old Sarno baths, which were sort of down, no windows, and no one cared about them. They weren't seen as having any kind of value scientifically, um, in part because of the way that Pompeii had been preserved. These body casts had been made, which I'm sure many of you have been there, and you've seen these incredibly evocative casts of people as they lay dying. Um, 
And she immediately thought, you know, I would like to study these skeletons forensically. I feel like there are things and assumptions about um, who was left behind in Pompeii, for example, that I could use these skeletons to disprove. So she spent, you know, every summer there for years and years and um, went through all these bones and literally sorted them out, you know, the mandibles and the sacra and, the, mm. and painted them with resin and numbered them and then gradually did her forensic analysis. And the thing that really interested me about her approach was that she felt that we shouldn't tell stories about the past and unless we can absolutely validate them with science. Um, and her uh, feeling about how the body casts, which are made differently, it's sort of like you pour plaster of Paris into a mound that's left behind when an organic form is covered by ash and then decomposes. So it's not the body itself, it's mm. the negative space that the body inhabited that you make the cast of. Um, and she really pushed back against this sense of giving these casts false stories and false names and false histories mm. that were all just sort of conjecture. And it was to, to humanize the people mm. of the long dead past. So there's, you know, something in that. But she felt that we do more damage to them by giving them these false stories. So, um, yeah, she's still doing really interesting work, actually. And she just emailed me which was terrifying because mm -hmm. I saw her name in my inbox and I'd when I was researching the book I thought should I I knew she was at, in Sydney at parts of the year I should I you know reach out to her and, mm -hmm. and I thought it's probably better that I just don't so that she has full deniability with the things I get wrong and I'm using you know my poetic license to take this all sorts of other places and so I credit her at the back of the book but um, I kept having this paranoia that she would turn up at an event and <laughs> stand up and say you got it all wrong you know it's actually if she's here just stand up now and, uh, <laughs> but she wrote me a really uh, you know a kind email um saying it was very weird for her to read a book that was based on her research mm. um which I totally understand and I think she's going to actually write an essay <laughs> about that experience um but also that the 13 body casts that were cast together in the Garden of the Fugitives um, and it was the, they were cast in 1961. It was the first time 13 bodies had been cast together as they lay in a kind mm -hmm. of tableau. Usually the bodies had just been done one by one. Um, they're actually going to start x-raying and cat scanning those casts sometime this year. She's got a project going on Pompeii. Um, because inside the cast, when they made these um, plaster of Paris casts, the bones, if they were still there, the skeletons would sometimes survive, would get, you know, um, captured in the plaster. So you can't get to the bones without mm. destroying the cast. And these casts have now become historic objects. Yes. So the only way to look at who those people really were and to see, so, you know, some of those false stories about them might be true or, or not is to scan them and then by looking at the bones you can tell. So one of the funny things that she's discovered is that a lot of the casts, you know, they often thought a cast was of a pregnant woman and it was just a fat man. <laughs> <laughs> or, um, you know, you can tell things about bone and where it's worn to see if the person was a slave or, um, or not. And one of the big things she disproved with her research was that there weren't more women left behind than men in Pompeii when um, the eruption happened because f until the 70s, a very prominent Italian archaeologist, a man, had had this theory that because women were so attached to their jewellery, they would not have left the city in as great numbers. But Estelle looked at all the skeletons and said, no, there's actually 50-50 men and women, so the men liked their jewellery just as much in those <laughs> times. But 
they did wear a lot of gold. What an incredibly stupid thing because jewels are the most portable Portable. form of property. You would have thought you could pick up your jewellery and run. If you were attached to your dog, I could understand that. (laughs) I I knew you would bring a dog in somewhere. I knew, you know, Kate Atkinson says, you can't write a novel without a dog. There always has to be a dog. And you subscribe to the Kate Atkinson philosophy about there always has to be a dog. Well, Carrie Tiffany and I have this secret project called the Whippetization of Australian Literature. <laughs> so we have now every one of our novels has to have a whippet in it, if, if only fleetingly. And the other thing that every one of your novels has to have, Michelle, and I, I think this is a big difference with you, Carrie, is in your writing, Michelle, food is important as a sort of cultural signifier, as a way for people to connect to other ethnicities, other cultures. Food is the most sort of obvious portal, the most ob- obvious vehicle. I have to say, when I get the impression in your books that no one eats anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Whippetize and food eyes. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, you do again, you apply that sort of ironic tone to this sort of interest in the kind of foods of the world, shall we say, Michelle. Would you just like to say something about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, um, look, it's just food. If food, uh, the other thing is clothes. These things are gifts to novelists because they're shorthand for conveying character, mm. really. So, um, oh, you know, Pippa is a foodie and um, so I have a bit of fun with that. Um, because it allows her, in a way, to connect to culture without having to actually bother with anybody. She can just go to a shop and buy a spice or, or, or another character in the book. It's yeah, not actually yeah. Pippa, but someone has the satisfaction of going into a shop and buying a spice. And that makes that gives them the illusion that they know something about that person's shop, that person's life, that person's country. Yeah, well, it's that whole thing about globalization, isn't it? As someone says in the book, well, you know, ironically says it, you, the great thing about globalization is you can eat... Thai or Chinese or Mexican without having to actually know any Mexicans or Chinese or Thai. Mm. So, you know, um, yeah, it's just about it's about um, food as a commodity and, as you said, as a social signifier. Um, so it's it's I just like and and you know I do think um, I hear more conversations about food in Australia than I hear in other places. Mm. Yes, but I even think in that France, even France. Yeah, well, I mean, one yeah. of the things that's happening to the French is that they're losing the ability to cook, and there is research about that. But I think that the subtext of your interest in or your commentary about these conversations about food is it's actually a little bit like the negative space in the casts in Pompeii. When we're talking about food, I think that you're reproaching us slightly for not talking about more meaty, to use an unfortunate word, uh, <laughs> subject. So, I mean, I think you, I think the, the, the sous-entendu, the sort of subtext of the remarks about mm-hmm. our interest in food is, why aren't we talking about Patrick White? Oh, good heavens. Um, <laughs> no, um, no, but it's... Um, oh, come on, you have, <laughs> a real, you, you have a real go at the fact that we've forgotten... Uh, the major figure in our literary uh, canon no, that he's not says, studied. Someone t- t- tweets to the effect says Patrick White was a genius. Yeah, but that's a tweet. A point. That's a tweet. <laughs> what weight um, has that got? Um, 
I think, you know, the book does have a lot of messages in it about the fact that we are not intellectual, that we are not teaching, we are not studying the great works of our literary canon. I mean, this is something that you do care about. Sure. I mean, what's sort of terrible about it is that we're not um, doing it in our universities. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, it always strikes me as so weird in a terrible way that ANU, our national university, has no chair in Australian literature. Yeah, which you say in the novel. I mean, a character, um, a character yeah, in yeah, the novel yeah. says that. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's unthinkable in other countries that this wouldn't happen. I don't know why we are so ashamed of, of our... Here, here, we all are at literary festivals, uh, but why are we so ashamed of our literary past? I don't know. I don't know. I wanted to ask mm. you, Caridwin, whether you see the same thing happening in contemporary South Africa. Are we seeing the greats of South African literature, the sort of Nadine Gordimers, etc., being forgotten and left aside as part of a rewriting of history, um, um, a... a um, well, yes. Is there something going on that you can compare with what Michelle is referring to? No, in that sense, actually, it's uh, very different, even though they share some similarities in colonial history. I think in South Africa, it's just a massive rebalancing to match the demographic makeup yeah. of the country. I mean, you have to remember that white South Africans are less than 10% of the country in South Africa. So the, the extreme focus on those white writers in the 80s, you know, Gordeman, Kutsia and Brink and Brayton, Brayton Bach, while, you know, understandable, they were taking risks you know, uh, speaking out. But um, now it's really about, you know, listening to the other 90% of the country. Um, and so that's different here. It's mm. a different, yeah, mm. different kind of uh, dynamic. And I feel like actually most Australians that I meet are extremely open to hearing from other voices. You know, it's almost yeah. that extreme self-consciousness about yeah. speaking about their own uh, realities, even though I just saw a statistic that 66% of Australia is classified as middle class, but you don't often read about the middle class in Australian literature. Um, really? Well, I think you I do. Think you do. Well, I think that's awful. But <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're just the ordinary stuff of the middle class. Yeah. But taking it sort of seriously as a kind of these are our lives. Um, I, w- I would say no. seventy to eighty uh, yeah, percent uh, of, of what the, I think contemporary really? Australian yeah. fiction is. Maybe we're is, reading is different that. Australian We must stuff. be. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have yeah. to say, I'm sort of. Uh, I feel like well, that's good because if we're not processing that stuff, like we need to hear from other voices too. But we also need to, you know, I'm I'm reading Leanne Moriarty's work for the first time because I'm interviewing her in a couple of weeks. I think she's a guest of the festival. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I find it extraordinary. It's uh, it's amazing how she is taking this, you know, this subculture, and um, in a way, yeah, not just uh, criticizing it, but sort of, you know, in the way that I think the best fiction does. You come away from reading about yourself because these are characters, you know, the. I'm, my son's just started kindy, so I'm sort of in that same mm. category of the, this weird, uh, you know, the politics of the playground and all that mm. stuff. And seeing that reflected back at me from the page kind of makes me kinder to myself. 
and kinder <laughs> to others. It's changed how I behave in the school. Gosh, that's fascinating. In the school ground. Yeah. And what else could you ask of, of fiction but to do that? No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you then, I mean, that's a very revealing um, point, Caridwen. What do you think, Michelle, in writing this book, you learnt about yourself? Because I, I would think that every book is, is a process of self-discovery. I mean, how, how could you um, write something as magnificently rich and complex and questioning as this without it having some kind of impact on how you how you understand yourself so what did what did you learn about yourself in writing this book oh I don't know I mean you know I I think it's quite different from Caridwin's in that in and you were talking about you know using it to process all these ideas I I really don't write so closely to experience uh, I mean Yes, completely in terms of, you know, observational things, but the characters are truly just kind of invented people. So I think it doesn't have that same psychological investment of the self that, you know, yours has. We're not saying you're Vita, but, you know, of, of exploring ideas that are... That are sort of very closely linked to your experience. I'm, I think I'm looking out at the world more. Yeah, um, and you write about Sydney yeah. in a way that I, being, I live in Sydney and I'm in a deep love affair with Sydney as a recent sort of returnee. Um, I think every time springtime comes, I think about Michelle's novella, Springtime. I don't know if you have read it. If you haven't, go and right. buy it if it's in the bookstore. because I pay her. That no, <laughs> in meals, yes, she does yeah. pay me in meals. Um, Michelle is a very good cook, <laughs> um, and then also the descriptions in this book of Sydney and springtime. And it, there's a description of Sydney as a city made of flowers, mm. and it's also changed how I and this wonderful description of a you know, in Sydney, if you know it well, in the spring when the jacarandas yes. bloom and one of the characters looks at a car and thinks that it's been made out of jacaranda petals because, you know, they've all fallen on it overnight. And I think that that's the sort of stuff, like seeing your own city done in that way, it's, it's so... So, yeah, in fact, I mean, I, what you're, what's interesting there is in a way you're saying that Sydney is a character in Michelle's book. And so even though you're saying, Michelle, that you don't write from the personal, maybe the personal is invested in the way you write about the city. Yeah, sure. Look, I think, you know, the personal is invested probably in every single line. But I think it's... Caridwen is really, it seems to me, um, the reason her the book is rich and complex is because there is this excavation of difficult feelings, like, mm. you know, and, and, and inheritance and shame and guilt. And um, it's it seems to me like a very... Uh, almost a forensic working through of mm. of those difficult difficult emotional feelings through through character. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying, and actually, yeah. I think I'm really glad this book is done because yeah. I will never write something like that again, and I will never draw. Uh, on yeah, my you will. I know. <laughs> well, maybe not. No, yet. <laughs> but I'm so glad I got some of the stuff out of the way, yeah, so yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I kind of, I know what you mean. yeah, I kind of aim to write like you. I know what you're saying that there's a, what you're saying about the lightness of touch and the, 
Yeah, I look forward to that. I feel oh, like yeah, I moved light. something it's out. Quick, you know, it's it's completely compelling. Your novel. It doesn't. It's not weighed down by these things, but that's what gives it its edge. It's Absolutely, that, I think. that that is. Mm. I think both of you have a different sort of take on on what, um, of course, was called by Kundra the unbearable lightness of being. <laughs> Will you please join me in thanking Caridwen and Michelle? And thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.